Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. I really appreciate you spending some time with us here again today. Now, I also produce a podcast for the National Association for Primary Education, that's NAPE, N-A-P-E. And a lot of what we do there is to focus on a child-centred idea of education and the conversations that we have there to really support that and examine the sorts of work we do as educators here in the United Kingdom. Now, if you'd like to listen to what I think are the top five podcasts we've produced, I've created a page on the Education on Fire website so you can get an introduction to that and explore that further. So that's educationonfire.com forward slash NAPE hyphen podcasts. That's N-A-P-E hyphen podcasts. Educationonfire.com forward slash NAPE hyphen podcasts. Now, today on the show, I'm talking to Suzanne Damale, and she's the author of Can You Hear Me Now? Suzanne exposes the unsettling reality of our classrooms with a brutally honest account of the policies and practices that leave so many children behind. As a parent, she fought a national battle against bureaucracy for the simple, common-sense idea that children in the back of a classroom should be able to hear their teacher. Can You Hear Me Now walks parents and teachers through everything they need to know to make a difference in their local district and beyond, from the most basic questions they should be asking to the most effective steps they can take to make their voices heard. Just before my conversation with Suzanne, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. Scientific SOS, written by Daniel Phelps, is a unique children's adventure for young people aged 8 to 12 and even to adults. It's where science meets adventure. It's not a science book, it's a children's adventure novel which has science in it. Five pupils, each with their own particular gifts, are thrust into a fight for survival and exploration that opens up the beauty and wonder of nature, science and the universe. Scientific SOS inspires children to look at the world with fresh eyes and curious minds. Riddled with riddles and poetry, it uses the power of narrative to help understand concepts deeply and remember facts. Children learn best whenever they are interested in something and enjoying themselves. This book does just that. It offers a new creative vehicle to add to the teaching and learning toolbox and creates a relaxed and enjoyable learning environment, perfect at any time, but especially now. Scientific SOS provides a perfect platform for discussions and encourages children to ask questions. So it's not only ideal for loan reading or as a class book, but perfect for homeschooling too. Scientific SOS can be bought on Amazon, both in Kindle or paperback, or find out more at scientifica.com. That's Scientifica with an X, X-I-E-N-T-I-F-I-C-A, scientifica.com. Hi Suzanne, thank you very much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about your book, Can You Hear Me Now? Where did that come from? What's the background about it? And and how did that fit in your sort of education and life experience? Hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, the idea for a book came about really a few years ago from my family kept encouraging me to write one because I was a teacher and I would come home after a long day at work and just share stories at the dinner table about my students and about some of the policies and the bureaucracy that I was having to deal with and how frustrating it was. And and they'd say, you know, you need to write this down. And so I kept hearing that. Um, And then in 2017, I had been asked by my daughter who was in college if I 
would be willing to give a speech as part of their, they were doing something um, about women in leadership and she asked if I would come. And my first response was, why would they want to hear from me? <laughs> what do I have to share? Um, and so I had said no. And then I started to think about it. Um, and she had said, you know, mom, just come and tell them your story. So um, eventually I did. I agreed to it. And I went and I shared my story. And the response was just overwhelming afterwards. People were coming up to me and, and reaching out even after the conference and saying, you know, we were really inspired by what you had to say. And, and you know, we were really interested in, in learning more. So again, that idea was kind of planted in my head. Um, I think what really kind of said, you know, uh, for me personally was I have to do this is I had an experience um, while I was teaching where there was a student that was really far below grade level in math and reading. And I had brought this student up to what we had, we called it a student support team, um, where you have like the, one of the administrators in the meeting and you have the school counselor and the school special education teacher. And we all kind of gather together to see what we can do to help this child. And this was the second or third meeting um, that we had had in this process. And at this point in time, it was March. And I had said, you know, I recommended that he not be promoted to fifth grade. I was teaching fourth grade. And, um, and I'd already gotten the agreement from his mom, who was fully in support of my recommendation not to promote him. And ultimately, um, the team leader disagreed and said, no, we're going to have to promote him. He's going to be moved on. And I, you know, when I questioned it, she said, well, he has to be moved on because we have so many other students in this school who have needs even greater than his that are below where he is, and they're going to get pushed on to fifth grade. So he has to move with them. And I just left that meeting and I, I literally felt sick to my stomach because I just knew it was wrong. I, I knew like this this boy, he was on a, a first grade level in math, and here he was in fourth grade. Um, we had already tried interventions. They weren't working. His self-esteem was really low. And, you know, I didn't feel it was in his best interest to move him on, and I felt like we were lying to his his mom to say that he was ready to move on. And, I, and again, this wasn't an isolated incident. I, you know, I was seeing this every year. I was seeing kids that were coming to me that just weren't where they should have been by the time they started um, fourth grade. And I felt like, you know, something is wrong here. Like we're not adequately preparing these kids and we're pushing them through the system. We're lying to their families about how ready they are and, and something needs to be said about this. Um, and it was really, you know, that's really what kind of prompted me to sit down and actually start writing and, and, you know, really uh, try to discuss as many of the important issues as I could that I had experienced in my classroom that I felt like needed to be shared with the world. And and take us through a little bit about how you then set the book up in terms of chapters and, and overall sort of structure. How, how, what is it in terms of how, what you wanted to get across as opposed mm -hmm. to sort of the, the practicalities of reading it? Sure. Well, I, the book is really divided into two clear parts. Um, the first part discusses why I feel like education is failing and why it needs to be improved. And I hit on five main topics in there. I talk about common core standards, technology, 
um, grading policies, English language learner instructional programs, and then the last uh, chapter in that section it has to do with discipline and behaviors because I felt like that was really a um, something important that needed to be addressed. And that's the first part of the book. And in between each of those um, sections, I have a, a story that really um, just focuses on a particular student that I taught and just goes into you know, a, a mini story about um, who this student was and how education really was so important to that student and how that student really, um, you know, in a lot of cases came from a very disadvantaged background and they needed a strong education in order to have a better life and how that impacted me. So those are, they, those sort of punctuate the end of those little sections or chapters. And the second half of the book is the how, um, sort of a guideline that I put together, step-by-step -step process of how parents and teachers could advocate for something better. And I um, use my own personal experience 15 years ago as really a reference for that. Um, I t I, in each of those steps, I talk about what I did as a parent 15 years ago to make a nationwide change in our classrooms um, to help kids hear better. And it's interesting sort of week on week as is um as we listen to the people chatting on the podcast it really just strikes me it's all about personalized learning and the thing about learning is it's always been personal because it's only ever about the child it's only ever about everybody's individual experiences isn't it and sort of i know we're doing mass education that's the way the system is set up at, at the moment but um I, I guess the, there's that idea of the fact, uh, is education there for the child or is the education system there now just to promote the education system? And I, and I think that's kind of where things start to get a little bit lost. Right, right. I agree. And and that is really one of the problems, major problems that I see in public education right now is that these decisions for policies and practices, practices um, are being determined by people that are not in the classroom. And they don't realize how diverse our student population is. And some of those policies, you know, they they may work for one group of kids, but it's not a one size fits all. And so I feel like um, we really do need to give more autonomy to the individual schools so that they can meet those individual needs of the students. Yeah, and that's certainly something I've heard a lot recently is, and it's that sense of, you know, what do children need? You know, there's there's some parts of the population is like we need to catch up on everything that's been missed which is let's not even start about that <laughs> again today <laughs> I don't believe anybody's been missed we've been through a, a global pandemic and, and we've all learned and grown and, and done what we can um, and others have gone completely the other side and said you know kids need to be able to relax they need to heal in lots of ways you know in sport and the arts and the breadth of just spending time with their friends is the most important thing to enable them to kind of sort of I guess sort of envelope themselves back into what life was, they felt life was like before before they were being isolated and right. yeah, and, and, and there's everything in, in between all of that but I think just picking up on what you mentioned I think the one key thing has been that you know as a teacher or as a school we know our community within the school mm. and we think whatever version of that kind of rainbow if you like of, of one extreme to the other we know what will fit the best for for our community and let us just do that and I think one of the fears is the fact that people are going to take that out of uh, out of their hands a little bit it's going to have to like say be a sort of a one-size-fits-all 
Right. I agree. So tell us a little bit about about your your background. You said you were teaching fourth grade. Um, tell us sort of obviously, I guess, a range of people and, and, and sort of the sort of ages and that, that you've covered across your entire career. Well, uh, my background is is very diverse. <laughs> um, I have a wide range of experience. I actually graduated from college as a business major and I became a certified public accountant. Um, and, and I did that for several years. Um, and it was really when I have had my own children, I have three children, and it was when my middle child, Christopher, was in kindergarten. Um, he was diagnosed with an auditory processing deficit, which essentially means that his ears could detect all of the sounds, but his brain had difficulty interpreting what those sounds meant. Um, you know, your ears, all they do is capture sounds, and then your brain has to identify and recognize and discriminate between the sounds and put them all together. And for some reason, um, you know, he just had difficulty doing this. He was hearing things in um, sounds in different orders. So like the word fits, F-I-T-S, he might hear as fist, F-I-S-T. Um, so it, it was creating a lot of challenges for him in terms of reading because phonics is the foundation of reading. Um, and you need to be able to hear and understand what you hear properly to, to have phonemic recognition. Um, it, but it really impacted him socially as well. So I started as a mom to just kind of do some research to understand his problem and how I could help him. And I started looking into, well, what is it like in a typical classroom with acoustics and, and how children hear and how important is hearing in the classroom? And that was just opening Pandora's box. Um, I started to discover just all of these issues about how a normal hearing child has difficulty hearing in the typical classroom because of poor acoustics and because all children um, have immature hearing capabilities with what their brain does with the sounds. Um, so Christopher's obviously were more extreme than that, but the normal hearing child doesn't fully have the neurological capability to process sounds until they're between 13 and 15 years old. And what that means is if you put, um, let's say, a six-year-old in the same room as an adult and they both have normal hearing, um, that child's ha going to have more difficulty hearing and understanding what they hear than the adult will. Um, so if you have background noises going on, an adult you know, may be able to just get through it and, and uh, automatically fill in gaps for what they're not hearing, but a child cannot. So because of that, um, children actually can miss out on a third of what they're hearing in a typical classroom. And I was learning all this information about, you know, the difficulties with normal children being able to hear in the classroom and also with all those kids that actually have some sort of hearing impairment, including um, a temporary hearing impairment from ear infections, which is very common. It's between 15 and 20 percent of kids cannot hear properly for weeks to months because of an, a one ear infection. So I was learning all this information, and at the same time, um, I discovered that there's a really easy solution for it. We just have to give a teacher a microphone, a wireless microphone, and put a, at least one speaker in the room, preferably more than one, maybe in the ceilings. And that research shows that that improves academic achievement for all kids, and it improves behaviors because they can focus on what they're hearing. So I 
learned all this research and I thought, why do our schools not have this? Because this is something that impacts all kids, not just those with some sort of hearing problem. So I took that information initially to the school where Christopher was going to be attending um, the next year. And I realized, you know, this is more than just being about Christopher. This is about all kids. So I took it, um, started with our local school board, expanded that then to the state um, of Maryland. That's where I'm from. And then um, I actually formed a nonprofit organization and uh, took that message nationwide and ended up after many years, ended up getting those sound systems in a lot of schools throughout the United States. And after about four years of doing that, I just had really become so strong and passionate about educational opportunities for all kids that I decided to go back to school and become a teacher. And specifically, I wanted to be a math teacher. So I went back and got a master's degree and started teaching in the public school system. And I um, taught various grade levels, but most of my experience was teaching fourth grade math um, in a public school. Wow, that's a uh, I I love I love the journeys that you hear people go on because you sort of it's all of those experiences, isn't it, that that create you as the teacher, and, and right. that doesn't that doesn't come from going back to school. It doesn't just come from this. It comes from your life experiences, like you say, whether it's in your family or whether you've had a previous career, whatever it happens to be. And I just think it's such an amazing well resource isn't the right word for our education system but just that kind right. of breadth of understanding and, and willingness and goodwill and the ability to want to help children which I think is what everybody does when they when they start but I really like the fact that you'd already helped so many people like you say through getting getting your campaign going that it you know you sort of you sort of started from that whole different side of, of what education can be I think that's absolutely fantastic. Right. I, I feel like I, I do have many different perspectives on education. And, um, you know, certainly as a parent of three children who have um, two of them have already been through the public system, one is still there. And they're all very my three children are very different types of learners and have um, different feelings about the importance of school in their life. So, you know, I have that perspective, but then also um, as a teacher and, and I've really seen the bureaucracy in education from many sides because I had to deal with the bureaucracy of trying to get an idea about getting these microphones in the classrooms, you know, from the bottom up all the way through the school boards and, you know, talking to politicians, et cetera. So I have seen it from many sides and I do feel like um, my experience as a mother made me a better teacher and my experience as a teacher also made me a better mother. So it is very well-rounded. Yeah, it's very interesting that. And just on a purely practical um, point, I'm assuming that the first thing when you went to the schools to say, look, it's just as simple as having a microphone and some speakers was, but we don't have the money to, to put that into place. Is that kind of what you came up against? Um, I came up with all kinds of pushback on it. Um, it was amazing. Money of certainly certainly was part of, um, you know, their, the opposition. Um, just trying to make a change in an educational facility is... Um, a huge endeavor um, because then they have to select the vendor. There's a bidding process. They have to make sure they're going to be the ones to service the equipment down the road. So I ran into all those things. Um, 
and the, you know, the funny thing about the money was um, there was research that showed there would be savings in teacher absenteeism because they wouldn't be straining their vocal cords all day. Um, and there was research showing savings in special education referrals because a lot of kids are diagnosed with a learning dis disability when they really can't hear properly. So, um, yes, I did. I encountered a lot of pushback and certainly finances were part of it. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that, isn't it? That I think that's one of the big things in education is the fact that seeing that bigger picture and having something which has got a longer perspective is a really difficult thing because a lot of the policy making and a lot of the, the people in charge are looking very short term, whether that's po politicians or, or people sort of in, in the profession. It's an interesting thing. Um, the other thing I'd be interested to really dive into a little bit there is is what was it about you that enabled you to keep going so like I say you have that pushback and you hear these things over and over and you can sort of see the bigger picture what kept you going what kept you positive what made you sort of be successful and like I said in terms of taking it so far um I think it was a couple of things I had seen firsthand from seeing my son um just because of this one issue I saw what it did to his desire to go to school um, I saw what it did to his self-esteem socially. You know, he was withdrawing and isolating himself. Um, so I had really seen how just, you know, the negative impact of not being able to hear properly um, could result in many different ways in a child's life. And I, it just was, it, it just was so frustrating, you know, because it was really such a simple thing I was trying to, to get promoted. Um, and it really was something that was proven that all kids would benefit from and the teacher. And so I think it was just sort of this, um, you know, it just frustration with the system and, and it doesn't make sense why they're not doing this and why they're so slow about doing it. That just kind of um, sort of fueled my passion to keep going. And certainly what I saw in my son was part of that. Yeah, and I think I think that's what I love sharing all these stories is because <coughs> there'll be so many people listening that just go, yes, I've got that feeling. Whatever that personal thing is mm -hmm. for, for you, it's that kind of, ah, oh, I just know. And I mean, in my experiences being a musician, you know, it was it was the fact that when I was able to learn to play an instrument, I felt like I had a voice that I was sharing with the world. It wasn't in words, it wasn't in anything else, but I kind of felt like I was able to show up and, right. and, and express myself. And that just changed everything in terms of how I felt about learning, being in school, and, and I ended up being a professional musician. So obviously it was taking me in a very important direction for my life. But, but like you say, it's just knowing that there's something there which can help so many people. Right. So let's take you back in terms of your own school experience from from when you were younger is there a, a situation or a teacher that you remember that had a really big impact and and I guess how did that sort of mold maybe how you became a teacher afterwards um I probably I think I probably had about three teachers over the course of my education from k through 12 that probably really had an impact on me um, one of them was a music teacher in my elementary school um, so I had her the longest because I was in elementary school at the time for six years. Um, and, you know, she just, I think, well, to me, to a young girl, you know, I looked at her as like this just goddess, this queen. <laughs> um, you know, I thought she had a beautiful voice and um, music was really also part of my life as well. I started playing the piano when I was around five or six and I was a very shy, timid person. 
And music helped me to sort of just um, be able to relate to people and to have something that was my own and uh, something that made me, I guess, feel good about myself. And, and she encouraged that. She was running a musical production and I wanted to audition for it. And of course I wanted, you know, a lead part. And I had an average voice, but she worked with me like every day during lunchtime and every day after school to, to help me to be able to have a stronger audition. And she ended up giving me a, a major part. I, I don't know if it was a gift or not, <laughs> um, but I think that's what a good teacher is. You know, it's somebody that recognizes, um, you know, what a student's strengths and weaknesses are, what their passion is and what they need and um, you know in my case I needed that um, not it wasn't gonna, going to you know I, I'm not a singer <laughs> it wasn't going to do anything for me um, professionally down the road or academically but I needed that socially and um, you know it's somebody that just recognizes those needs and where the child is and really gives them opportunities and and pushes them beyond their comfort zone a little bit um, and that's what she did. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? And that's why I'm a really big advocate for having a, you know, a broad curriculum because mm -hmm. it's only there that you get to find out what those talents is, those talents are. You know, in the, as you start to open up those doors, the conversations that you can have with children are then, you know, multiple in terms of oh, I didn't realize that you liked doing this or that, or you really right. excelled in this, and oh, and th then it's that well, I've done this outside school or whatever it happens to be. There's that sort of a whole world there that you can get to know, and it's only by experience you know what you do like and what you don't like. And, and obviously there's a whole load of stuff especially when you're learning that you you do because it's just important that but it might like I say it might not sort of light your fire but you kind of know how that goes but it's only by having both sides of those uh both sides of that coin that you really get to understand that i agree i am a big believer in strong arts um, arts in our school and and pe classes you know i, I think kids need all of that they need exposure to all of that and you know it may be i taught a lot of kids who academically struggled with reading and math and you know they needed they needed art class and music class and pe class to you know to still feel really good about themselves in school and and you know i think that all of that is very important a balanced approach yeah and the other thing I often find interesting is that when children start to struggle, whether it's with mental illness or or really needing extra support, it's the arts which are often prescribed, if not for a better word. You know, it's kind of we're going to do some mindfulness now and we're going to do some drawing or some painting mm -hmm. or you can listen to this or, you know, things which are you don't need to be really struggling in life to do have these things given to right. you to be prescribed. They should be there for everybody to because that's an integral part of who we all are and if we know that it helps people who are struggling we also must realize that it helps everybody just to, th to thrive and to flourish and so right. it does it does seem amazing that that's just not not like say across the board for everybody i agree so is there a piece of advice or or something you would tell your younger self now that um and I would slightly mm. caveat this with the fact that when we're young we don't necessarily take on the advice but mm -hmm. something that we'd actually that you'd like to sort of share with everybody um, I think for me, it would just be relax and enjoy life a little better because <laughs> uh, I, I think I was always a person who just, you know, worked very hard and really felt like I always needed to be working. And um, so I would probably say, you know, take a, br a breath every now and then and, and just enjoy life a little more. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think the thing which I often forget, but I get reminded of naturally by life kind of giving you those lessons is just allow it to evolve. You know, like you say, you need the breadth, you need the chance Mm. to allow allow life to take over in its way and if, if you start from the standpoint that it's always working for you even if you're in a really difficult situation and there are many seasons of life that's a whole different conversation but it's it's often then that that opportunity arises or that conversation that you need comes from somebody or there's somebody that you meet which suddenly opens up a whole new door or, or anything and like I say it needs that breath you need to then just allow it to be and I think often sometimes the harder you work yourself into a quarter the longer you stay there right definitely um is there a a resource that you'd like to share with us and this could be a song a video a film a podcast a book anything but something which really sort of you feel is supportive or something which is special in your life oh gosh well i i read a book um a while ago called the last lecture by randy posh have you read that i haven't no oh okay well um he was a professor who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and he had young children himself. And it was customary at the end of, I guess, an academic year that a, the prof- college professor would would give something called the last lecture, which I guess is a, a, advice to students in general about life. And he really geared his topic towards his children um, because he knew he was going to be dying, which he, he ultimately did. And, um, you know, the, there's lots of great advice in there about life, um, things to keep in mind. And one of the quotes that he had in there was something about um, brick walls aren't there to stop you. They're, me- they're there um, to see how badly you want to get to the other side. And that has stuck with me. And I, I think that's true. And I certainly have hit a lot of brick walls um, in my journey in education. And, you know, you asked what kept me going. And it was wanting to get to that other side and knowing that. I should be on the other side of the brick wall and and that's kind of what pushed me along. I love that. I think it's such a great analogy and it's such a great, it's something you can really identify, isn't it? Because like you say, we all have those brick Mm -hmm. walls in there and you kind of think, well, maybe I'm just pushing against something which isn't supposed to change. But actually knowing that it's just about keeping that endeavor and keeping that belief and and really wanting to make a change, that makes such a a big difference. So so powerful that. So just to finish off, tell people where they can find out about the book, where they can find out more about you and uh, and explore more about the sorts of things we've discussed. Well, the book is available on Amazon. And they can also go to my website, which is SuzanneDemally.com. And they can learn more about the book on the site, get a copy of a free introduction from signing up there, learn more about me, and um, certainly learn a lot about the the hearing issues that I was talking about. I have a whole section on the website devoted to that. Um, And they can also get in contact with me through visiting the website. Fantastic. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights and your passion and your inspiration for everything you've done. I think that comes across so, so profoundly. So, yeah, thank you very much for being here and sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thank you to the National Association for Primary Education for their long-term support of the Education on Fire podcast. To get a free e-copy of their professional journal, Primary First, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash journal. That's N-A-P-E org.uk forward slash journal thanks for listening to the education on fire podcast for more information of each episode and to get in touch go to educationonfire.com
education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.